This is Directional, a podcast about video games and the creative rebellion. Chantal Ryan and Jörg Tittle. Everyone, thank you very much for coming and joining us on this new episode of Directional, episode 15, um, whatever that means, it's number 15, and we have an incredible guest with us today, and uh, uh, technically he really needs no introduction, um, because his name is Sam Barlow, and... Um, Ah, you've played his games. I mean, we've all played Immortality now and Her Story and some Silent Hills and and then there's other games, some some that haven't been released and should have been and and we all have a bunch of ghosts in our closets here in this room. Um, but um, an incredible, incredible game writer, director, auteur, and generally creative also rebel. That's and so we like you. Thank you for being here, Sam. Thank you. I'm in trouble now because you, you dropped the Ota word. So. <laughs> it, it is. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to get to that one later. Uh, you know, I think Chan and I, it's not our style to prepare for things, but we did actually, you know, discuss what we should talk about today a little bit. And, and I think that word falls into that a little bit, doesn't it, Chan? I think it does. And actually, Sam and I, we recently met in human flesh at South by Southwest Sydney recently, which was a surprisingly good show. Um, yeah, it was a fun time. It Out was. There in the meat space, in the, the Australian meat space. Love a good meat space. So many possibilities with meat, says the vegan. Um but yeah, we we had some interesting chats, Sam, and we definitely wandered into the tour territory a few times. And um, I'm sure it's not the first time you've had that word bandied around. Um, what what are your feelings on on the term generally? <laughs> uh, oh, it's a, a terribly. Uh, complicated and dangerous term um which has meant you know it's been used and tweaked and changed and reused as uh over the years i the middle stage of my career as i look back on it now when i was working for the bigger companies and trying to do interesting things it was a concept that at the time was useful because if you looked around, it was like, well, how am I, how am I going to be allowed to do interesting things, uh, especially with my stories? And, and how am I going to be allowed to try and tell the story through game mechanics and do all these things? Um, and it seemed like the only way you could do that and get paid enough money to do it was to be the game director, right? And, and so you would have your, your Ken Levines or your Kojimas where it was understood that these these kind of auteur figures would be these creative heads of projects and they would be writing them and directing them. And these were the few people that were allowed to have opinions about game design and story at the same time. And the vast majority of, uh, particularly at that time, 
uh, like games writers or, or narrative people, they would be brought in as an external you know, you know, uh, consultant and there would, there would already be a game design and their job would be to, to explain why that game design was there or to just kind of paper over the cracks or what have you. So it was kind of useful to be able to, to point to everyone's understanding that yes, in uh, you know, particular in film, you, you have these large teams, but there is this, this author figure that sits there and creatively drives it and, and appeal to the money men, uh, you know, and try and, and, and kind of fill that slot. So that was useful. Um, and even to the extent where you would see it kind of erasing the fact that this is a hugely collaborative team project. Uh, I would always be okay with that. Cause to my mind, you know, if I go see, uh, I go see a Cronenberg movie, there is, there is clearly a distinctive signature to the Cronenberg movie. Um, and that is not just because Cronenberg is running things, but it's also because the people who are going to go and work on a Cronenberg movie know what they're getting into. And there are some people shared across the different projects and stuff. So to me, it was like, well, okay, if you're going around saying this is a Kojima game, uh, that in some ways is a useful thing because all the people working on that team get to make something more interesting and weird because of that, that kind of branding of the overall project. Um, and, and then I guess in, in more recent years, uh, you know, it's a term that's uh, continued to be misused to the point where it does now in many cases feel problematic because it kind of erases the work of lots of other people. And it has, uh, I, I guess the most problematic aspect is it has created a, a cult of personality that, uh, you know, has has uh, facilitated all sorts of abuses of power and, and, and kind of gross stuff. So, um, and, you know, whereas as a, as a film buff, I go back to the conception of it, right, which was French people going, we really, really like these commercial studio movies and we think there are and no one else does. So all we need to do to prove there are is to create an author. So we're going to, create the concept of an author. And we're going to say, instead of it being the studio or the producers, it's the director, right? We need to, to place that authorial point somewhere. So we're going to pick the director. And now this allows us, it gives us the apparatus to actually analyze and treat these as intentional authored works, right? So, But the writer as well in, in France, you have the, the, the droit d'auteur or the, the author's rights, which are extremely holy in France to a point where... If you're a writer on the film, your <laughs> your rights it. to that Sir, material I think are, the cult are of personality thing is and, like very interesting. Uh, which doesn't, which, which is not really in the case, up, the case yeah, in, in, because, in most yeah, other countries in the world. And and I was so the auteur in general, whether they're and and they then extend that same um, term also to composers, the droit d'auteur, like everyone is an auteur innocent. in France. In France, like the composers on. are auteurs, the yeah, writers are auteurs, the directors are auteurs, the we bring uh, the cinematographers the are auteurs as well, and, and uh, I think uh, um, so. So I think it, I think it's been the term has been widely misconstrued and sort of also probably usurped by a few big egos. Uh, there is there is a very funny screenwriting joke, and which I've goes been something like particularly intrigued uh, in this. Uh, the, re the reason you have to use a French word uh, is because the only way you'd get away um, with 
you know, coming to calling the director the writer, given that there is I didn't, a, there's a better expression to of this be joke. Here. But uh, but sometimes along the lines of like you know you can only get away with you know you're basically calling the director the writer when there is a freaking writer <laughs> but if you do it in French no one's going to notice. If you wanted to kind of be able to make the kind of games you wanted to make, yeah, you have to French. kind of uh, ascend to kind of the level of like the auteur, the the recognized visionary. Whereas I came from just someone kind of making a cool game with a friend. And uh, I've always been very kind of collectivist in a way. Um, contrary to popular belief, I actually am not a huge fan of lots of attention. And I noticed that when I started kind of engaging with the media more and engaging with community uh, this really interesting phenomenon started to happen where I was constantly bringing up the team project. You know, Dark Web Streamer is, it's a team. It's a small team, but it's not just me. I'm, you know, I make the kind of vision and design contribution among some others, but uh, this is very much a collective team effort and um, should be seen as such. But what I found and uh, I still notice today is that over and over and over, people and particularly the media brings the game back around to my name. And so like I've really tried to hype up the studio's name, which is We Have Always Lived in the Forest. But if you actually go and look at all dark web streamers media, you'll constantly see my name brought up over and over and over again in a way you don't necessarily see very often. I mean, I mean, I think you know, people are people, people, and it it is always easier and and useful sometimes to attach things to people. And I think, especially in the indie side of things, putting a human face on, um, which you know, sometimes for the good, right? Like working for bigger companies, they absolutely want to eliminate that aspect, right? So to them, the franchise is key, right? So you have like Activision getting rid of the Call of Duty creators and going, we don't need them because Call of Duty is the franchise. It's not the, the people that, that kind of gave birth to it. Um, so there's, there's definitely a useful kind of corrective there. But 
yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing because as well, like making indie games, like branding and self-branding ends up being so important because you don't have a $2 billion marketing budget. So, you know, I know at this point that like having made her story that, you know, was mostly actually me. So it wasn't too much of a push to put my name all over it. Um, that, you know, my name <laughs> now US. had some cachet. So it was useful to continue using my name as, as a recognizable brand, uh, to, to drag some of that audience along. Um, but now as we're kind of scaling things up and like, we have two projects going currently, uh, it's like, oh, are there, you know, as exactly as you say, it's like, we'll keep mentioning the name of the company so that the, the, the team name is in conversation so people will start to associate that um but yeah it's 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 a weird one i mean people like to i know on one hand i do genuinely seek out authored things like for me the point of of most of the art i'm interested in is to feel very close to someone else's perspective or, or to get taken inside someone else's head and so, you know, experiences that have been created by committee or are uh, you know, being calibrated for, uh, you know, a, a, a group experience, you know, being focus tested, are, you know, less exciting to me. Whereas if I feel like, oh, shit, no, I've, you know, been dragged into this, impen- you know, other people's heads are extremely impenetrable little things, right? And you know, the, the best art for me makes me feel like I've genuinely been sucked inside and, and experienced some of that. So, uh, you know, which is, you know, it's <laughs> sometimes I think of the, the indie games I've made as being slightly more novelistic, <laughs> um, oh. partly in structure, but also in kind of intent, right? There is the understanding with a novel, which is mostly true. I mean, novels still have editors. They still have teams of people, but in, in theory, a novel is something where you're going to have a very direct connection uh, through language to someone else's thought processes. Um, and that seems very cool. Um, and those are the kinds of experiences and the kind of intimacy that I want to cultivate with my games. But naturally, making these games sometimes requires like a couple of hundred people to come along and bring their contribution and their perspective and their skills as well. Um, so, you know, sometimes to be to be the one at the top there who's like, well, this was my idea and this is me expressing myself. It feels ever so slightly indulgent to be like, hey, everyone else, come and help me. Help me deal with my issues and, and let's just together, you know, think about these things. Um, yeah, to become the sort of Woody Allen of video games. Um, oh. I, just wanted to, I just wanted to say here that I'm not, yeah, I would, would 100% not want the the label of the Woody Allen of video. No, 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 no. But it's, it always seems like everyone is part of, you know, is 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 started started to become part of his sort of uh, therapy or failed therapy sessions um, in his films, um, and playing along with that, and almost playing Woody Allen in all of his movies, uh, which is interesting. But it's like I, it, it, it's fascinating because like it seems to me, and and I've had a very similar uh, reaction to it. Like when I started in games. Um, actually working at Activision, bizarrely, back in 2001. Um, 
is is everything was so there are a bunch of people sitting in cubicles most of them had like you know superman sort of action figures on their desks you know everything was very sort of brand oriented uh, there was no individual expression at all everything was license driven um and so as as a sort of sort of natural rebel i just wanted to you know get in there and bring some of that sort of film you know, and theater sort of bravura and sort of, I guess, auteur mentality into the comp- into the into the place and almost fuck shit up mm-hmm. because it was driving me crazy that everything was being done by committee and no one was bringing any of themselves to anything. Um, and so, so it's fa- it's it's it feels like it's both essential to to have a bit of an auteur approach in order to you know it was especially especially then to bring some of the auteur approach to games in order to bring some personality and as, as you also said intent to games um and i also feel that you know as we have always we said about the french use of the word auteur like everyone can be an auteur on something not just not just the director and and i just it, with indies now we're starting to feel that more and more like the fact that people are really bringing themselves to it, like not just in the directorial role, but in the art role and the music, etc. Like Thirsty Suitors, for instance, just came out last week. It's you can see that everyone brought themselves to this game, and and it's gorgeous. And um, um, so my thing is like, <laughs> we, I think we kind of need auteurs in order to remind people the fact that they can be themselves. Perhaps don't you think in art? Yeah, I mean, I, I get really attached to the, the, the that actual definition, right, of it being author. I think there is, for me, the thing that many games lack and even, like, the production pipeline lacks is, like, what, what does a writer do? A writer is somebody that observes, processes, has some level of self-awareness or self-analysis, then goes and sits in a quiet room and works really hard to create a fiction which communicates something, right? And, and it's it's not only expressing something of themselves, but they're, they're trying to form it in such a way that it communicates to other people, right? And so there's all sorts of craft that goes with that. You know, it, it requires a certain type of brain to be able to have that sense of, of setting, step, you know, saying back from other human beings and, and observing. And uh, usually, you know, usually writers have some, some small amount of trauma in their life that allows them to have that perspective. And so for me, like there is, there is, so there is a whole, you know, process to, to create that perspective. And I think that, you know, so it's not just like, Oh, I am a special person that has such a unique worldview that you all need to sit and listen. It's like, okay, well, I I have got a set of skills and, you know, that is going to enable me to, you know, create these interesting things. And I think a, a respect for that process in games, which, uh, you know, and we try to kind of focus on that here now is, you know, you need time to do this. You need to respect that the writer is someone that should be allowed to go and think and try and go deep on an idea to then come back and then figure out how do we express this through our medium, whether that's as a novel or as a, as a video game. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my experience of traditional video games was, well, there wasn't even, uh, you know, a concept of a writer. There was the designer, right? And a designer might write a design document. Um, but I was was very rarely given time to write that design document. Um, it was, you know, usually knocked out as quickly as possible and was both, you know, a, a set of very simple functional 
kind of observations. Uh, and the, the key things that we do in our medium, like how we're using gameplay, what are we doing, what is the content we're creating? These are all things that were figured out on the go or, or slotted into a very specific existing template, whereas those should be the things that are part of that rightly process, right? I should be able to go and sit in a dark room or a bright lit room and, and stare into space and, and try and in my head imagine this thing that we're creating. Like to me, that is what a writer does, whether they're writing a screenplay and, you know, they're imagining a movie that has never been made before. And and they're not only writing the words, but they're thinking of what the camera's doing. They're thinking of like the structure of this thing. Yeah, it's interesting. But then you also have directors like Mike Lee who don't write the script. I mean, they might have like a very rough outline, perhaps an idea of where they might go with their film. And then they use a cast of, you know, brilliant, mostly improv improvisational actors to devise the story as they go. And, the, and, and Mike, who is, you know, an auteur, you know, I mean, his films are always very, very typically Mike Lee films, um, hasn't actually written a single line of dialogue. It all comes naturally from the actors. And I feel that, you know, of course, like when we're making narrative driven games, which have a very sort of, you, you know, you know, narrative voice at the center and a sort of dialogue driven, et cetera, that's one thing. But I also believe that if we then extend the language of 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 games to gameplay and mechanics, et cetera, and we start regarding our programmers, for instance, as as actors in our play and we start regarding their uh, code uh, and indeed their code language as a form of expression, then can we also have an auteur uh, enable and empower um, all of the developers on the team to to create a narrative that is not necessarily linguistic um, and, and also then become auteurs alongside them? I think the challenge there is order of operations, right? In that... Uh, you know, in, in, a, in a Mike Lee situation, which I think... It, it, from from my understanding is uh, there is a lot more authorship and structure and control going on, you know, uh, across that whole process. But in a world where you show up and you have the actors in costume and you have a schematic of the scene and then you let people just improvise, that wouldn't work if after the scene had been finished, the cinematographer started having ideas about how he would light it differently, right? They, the cinematographer has to have had their ideas before things started in order to capture it on camera, right? And I think you have a similar thing with the complexity of games where mm -hmm. there, are, there are so many departments that rely on each other that can't start work until someone else has. That, that there are, you know, scenarios, and, and certainly like when you read about how Nintendo works and you, and you see the, the kind of small teams they create to, to figure shit out and come up with cool ideas you can see that there are kind of moments of creation and, and, you know, the ability to outside of the pressures of actually making something or shipping something to a date, you can actually kind of arrive at interesting things. And certainly like I've heard, um, uh, like uh, teams within Naughty Dog, again, like have, have such an unlimited budget and time that, uh, you know, they can work for a couple of years, just, just playing, and, and, and because they have small teams of like, there's a coder, there's an animator, there's an artist, there's a designer, they are be able to, you know, meaningfully collaborating to 
come up with something cool. Um, and again, because they under no time pressure, they can throw stuff out, start again. And, and if there is a blockage, right, if, if there are dependencies between those disciplines, those will kind of fall out because they, they have enough time and freedom to do it. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's definitely, but, I, but I, I mean, I think that my issue is coming into games and seeing that it's so far in the other direction mm-hmm. where, um, you know, and the, the, the kind of excuse slash justification that I would always hear would be, oh, video games are different because they are an experience for the player. Until the thing is implemented in game, you won't have any idea if it works or not. So we shouldn't overthink it until it's in game and then we can iterate on it. Mm. And I've found that that often uh, justifies and supports an amount of laziness, or not laziness, but like fear of committing to an idea. So it's it's much easier to be like, well, let's see what happens and then kind of iterate and figure stuff out. Um, but you know, if you do too much of that, that is the equivalent of, uh, you know, showing up to a Mike Lee movie and the actors are all going to improvise and so is costume and we don't know where this thing is set. And actually Mike Lee's not 100% sure what the story is, right? That is chaos. That's not going to be, um, you know, because similarly you read about, um, you read about like the process that like Kubrick would shoot under. Um, so, you know, famously Eyes Wide Shut was the longest film shoot in history. Um but he would turn around and go, yeah, but it was very cheap, like relatively. Like, yeah, I spent however many months shooting this thing. But he would show up, find a set. He would show up on set. He would walk around it for a day, play around with some blocking with the actors, figure out. He would then spend a day lighting it himself, setting everything up. Then the actors would come in the next day, and then they would run stuff for like 70 takes or whatever. But you know, he was he was giving himself the, the freedom to show up and figure stuff out. But he gave himself enough time, but because his team was small enough, it was not onerous, right? If, 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 if it was a Marvel movie and there was a gigantic team of people and a whole CGI team waiting in China ready to go, he couldn't show up on set and be like, let me just walk around the space and figure some stuff out, right? He would need everything one ready to go. It would need to be well, It's, it's funny you, you say that, but I was first, I was on the set of, I think it was Fast and the Furious 9. And uh, it was like this, 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 in that movie, you have the car that's flying into space. And <laughs> I think there's, I mean, it's absurd. And, uh, and it was like, a, it was a rapper who was in it. I forgot which one. And he was playing one of the characters in it. And there was a Chinese star and she had like her whole entourage of like 20 people around her. And, and so it's like, it was a huge, you know, like sure. team. It sounds like the day and blah, blah, blah. And um, and they're filming <laughs> the thing, and there's the VFX supervisor, there's double negative, there's all these fucking people. So and, it sounds uh, like they're filming the scene, uh, and the we're actor, bumping into kind of. Uh, I think it was ludicrous. He's um, he just couldn't do the stunt. The like, he just couldn't do it. So it's like, and so the VFX supervisor goes like, "Yeah, we can probably fix that in post." In order to coordinate <laughs> all these and, different and it's like, parts should we get the, the stunt double in? Like, I was well, really interested to hear up. you guys oh, speaking. Oh, you mean like how long is the costume change going to be? Like forty-five minutes. You know, traditional. Just put the just put the shirt on. We'll put the helmet on in post. Yeah, I think and, yeah, I'll, I'll um, I think for me, yeah, really, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of yeah, my, we, we can do that. my really? yeah, we'll just track with the head this kind and, of 
or whatever. Um, and it's like, so basically they're just like on the fly. What's the bare minimum of human flesh we can get in this thing that we need? That's it. Just, and, yes. And, kind of and each so one of those, yeah, I think we can do that in post, costs like $300,000, you know, it's like right there. And we yeah, I've learned as, as someone working with low budget, I've learned never, dark. never yeah. punt it to post. All of a sudden, because then when you see post money will buy you, you root the day to kind of help execute that vision, and it's integral the way that they are executing it. You can tell people what to do, but you know, ultimately, the execution um, and whether they're able to manage it in the way you envision it will be up to them. So, I think that. It, it's difficult because we kind of need this this helm. We need the person steering the ship and we need the person that everyone comes to for direction, for um, kind of like, you know, the bird's eye view, which is where, you know, the media comes in and speaks to that person they've identified as really leading the ship. Um, and so what I'm thinking, I... I get uncomfortable with the moral implications of, you know, kind of accepting the credit on behalf of everyone when you know that often other people killed themselves to make this work or other people had a kind of a great idea that you folded in to really make that thing shine. And so perhaps, um, you know, as we kind of navigate this idea of autism, what perhaps untangles the problematics of it is if we kind of make a moral commitment to always give credit to the team and not just like the team as some disembodied creature, but we make sure that, you know, when we have our interviews, we're directly naming kind of the people who worked on it. And Sam, I've noticed that you're actually very, very good at doing that. You make a real point to name specific names. Sometimes I'll see people kind of reference the programmer. <laughs> Sam, you're shit at it. And this is actually a public call out that you need to be better. And so does the industry. No, I think you're a good role model for this. Um, it's you know, something I have picked up. Mm -hmm. I was like, am I, am I about to get called out here? Okay. <laughs> but, but that's really interesting, actually, this, this question of, of 
of of credit and actually you know appreciating the individuals that make games especially in light of the current atmosphere in the industry atmosphere or the trend to lay off hundreds if not thousands of people um when the auteurs of the chaos uh, i.e. the the fat cats in charge of the corporations that have promised a bunch of big profits to their sh- sh- shareholders and instead of laying themselves off you know just suddenly just you know uh, fire hundreds of people instead it's interesting that it's just there's this double standard in the industry where where you have people in charge of these corporations not taking any any credit for any of the failures that they are uh, responsible of uh, and at the same time also not allowing individuals to either remain in their jobs or get credited for their work so it's a it's a it's a it's an interesting industry it's like i i just i feel the tension too because i i'm i really go out of my way to to talk about everyone that makes the games that i'm directing or that i'm in charge of or whatever you want to call it because um, it's very important to me. But at the same time, it feels that if something fails, the blame is put on the, on the formerly nameless people who are suddenly out of a job. And I feel that tension is really uncomfortable right now to me in this industry. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, you, to me, the, the captain should always go down with the ship, right? And if you are, like, the, the, if there is a usefulness to, it being a Cronenberg movie, right? If there is, this is a rallying thing, a rallying call. It allows us to get investment for the next movie, tells people what the movie is, right? If I go and see a Cronenberg movie, I know what to expect. So if I'm going to go work on a Cronenberg movie or write on a Cronenberg movie or do costumes or whatever, I know going in like this appeals to me or this is something that my voice can contribute to. Um, but then if, if that movie is a failure, then, uh, you know, it, can be a, a, an albatross around the neck of the the, the kind of figurehead. Yeah, because it's, I mean, at the, at the huge corporate level, it's so weird now, right? Because you have like Marvel with uh, Kevin, Kevin Feige, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. Uh, he's essentially the director, right, of the Marvel movies. and But he will hire really cool, unique indie voices to helm the movies as a way of kind of, as lightning rods or, or you know, he's, he's kind of offering up their creativity as, as some kind of promise that there will be something. But then you see these directors and they're like, I showed up. It had all been prevised for me. The FX team know what they're doing. The fight people know what they're doing. I'm basically there to talk to the actors and to try and get some good line reads, right? Or, or to try and try and inject something. But they will then be used, right? If uh, the Eternals fails, 100% the fault of the director is not Kevin's fault. It's not the especially, Marvel. Especially the female director. Yeah, it, it, it had, it's especially the woman's fault, always. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, that definitely gets kind of super gross. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's especially as a writer-director, which, <laughs> again, like I know lots of writers who are, you know, solely video game writers, and some of them, you know, come in, like I say, in that that less than ideal situation where they're brought in late in the day to do stuff. Some of them are brought in early, but are, uh, you know, somewhat siloed from the core creative team or the design team sometimes. And that always seems like a really difficult situation to me. Um, so it definitely, for me, the way I work, it feels like I have to be a writer-director mm-hmm. to, to figure out 
how this game is going to work. Um, and yeah, there is that process of, of, of bringing things that live in your head that may be very specific to you that you might not even know why they have a certain charge, but, but it's there. And then suddenly everyone else gets involved and starts dressing the characters. And, and, I mean, it's all, it's working with live action. It's always so exciting when you cast someone in a role because I tend to, I tend to be someone that doesn't write with someone in mind. Uh, and I actually always get really uncomfortable if people are like, please write a role for me. I'm like, no, that's <laughs> like, um, but the second that, someone is booked in a role and starts rehearsing it, suddenly the character is off and is, is completely living outside of my brain and is doing that. Um, and, you know, generally it gets easier and more fun if you, you bring in more and more skilled people to, to kind of jump in. But then you're still, you're still performing that role. And it's definitely a more awkward role in games because it's left to find and games are still more rough and ready of, of like being the person who, who does have that final say as to like, is this right for the project? Is this choice going to help? Um, Cause you know, that's kind of very understood as, as a, as a film director that that's essentially your purpose is to be the arbitrator of, is this right? Yes or no for the project. So people go off and do their work and then, you know, costume brings the choice of two outfits, which of these is the right outfit for the character. And, Oh, we're going to go this way. So you, you know, your, your job is to have that consistency and that commitment to the, 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 the kind of core value of the story. Um, uh, and it was certainly like when I was working on big game it projects, was... it was I harder, to make but more necessary to do that because, because teams were so siloed because, <laughs> And uh, obviously, you know, not always, but disciplines to some extent were silent. So, you know, I people were going off an internet creating character animations, and someone else is, is reading this character, someone's concepting this thing, someone else is writing this piece of code. I might be able to because of the because of that order of operations thing. Kind of, of you know, in an ideal world, if it was naughty dog, or if you had system of reality that that fix it in post money. Your you could allow things to go wrong that and then fix them, right? And you could put we, things like, in game we don't and go, actually, no, in these times, let's throw that out think and start again. And you think about but in a, in a world where you have limited resources, your uh, job is to get in all those meetings the kind of bond to, to try and ensure that everything is I'm not going to get into the nature of Chantal, when not your argument, but very largely creating blank. Um, they may have some kind of beginning traits. Was that a way of trying to erase your A lot of time around babies, or like had one. Well, there that you you kind of you get an introvert or an extrovert baby, and that's just how they're born. But you know, as they grow, they begin to accumulate traits that are shaped by their experiences. They they grow and gain personalities. And so that's really a system. It's a system that we go through in life from these very blank slates to the acquisition of these identity components that make us up. And so I was very interested in the idea that we might kind of try to recreate that same system, but in code and in, you know, a form of... Um, shifting narrative and dynamic narrative that allowed for those personalities to shine. So I think, you know, 
this very interesting phrasing that you asked me because uh, I had to sit with it a moment. But yeah, like ultimately what I wanted to do was um, make a God system. And by making a God system, I removed myself and kind of left it up to God in a way. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. That's half the thrill of it. You know, any AI designer who tells you, you know, it's not about being God. It's totally about being God. Let's be real, guys. But did you not become God yourself? Yes. But it's true, though. It's like it's it, you. There's a there's a total fake modesty involved in being an auteur, being a director in charge of anything, because you have to be a director. Well, at the same time, try to. I, I mean, the best directors. I mean, if you look at here again to use the because i know sam you 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 are a, a film lover i'm a filmmaker myself and a lover of films as well it's it, it's you know when you hear about people talking about their collaborations because they are always collaborations with martin scorsese you know perhaps the you know the greatest living american filmmakers still to this day you know uh it, it's he is lovely like he is completely self-effacing while at the same time being this exuberant, you know, large personality. He is just everyone's favorite uncle on set. He's just an absolute gorgeous human being that makes everyone feel comfortable and giving and, and honest and vulnerable and, and at ease. So, and he's not a dictator um, on set, uh, but he is an authority figure and, uh, and he's not, fake in his modesty he is just gorgeous and giving um and you know and so some people a lot of people would consider him a god among filmmakers uh so I, there's nothing i personally love the fact that you know with you and chantal and others in this industry and and not, not just kojima um who of course does everything on his games um including <laughs> the catering um that there are personalities in this industry that are able to be vocal and talk about, you know, both their craft, but also what they consider to be right and wrong in the business uh, and in the art form in general and the, the culture or, or our sort of <laughs> gradual sort of removal of culture that's also happening in some ways. We need... Don't you feel that we kind of need these voices, even if they are sometimes uncomfortable to be in the limelight, that we do need to step outside and go like, yeah, I am this person that does this. 
and and I will now step into the limelight as Chantal does as well, as we are doing on this podcast as well. And to say like, you know, this is the graft that's involved. This is the pain that we go through. This is, these are the challenges that we faced. And also like, it's okay to have a voice as a game developer. Yeah. Like I say, I think that for me, the, the, the authentic voice is the thing that's interesting to me. And yeah, given, given the forces that are working against interesting things. I mean, I'm very, I, I am endlessly fascinated by what you're just saying with Scorsese of uh, actually how rare it seems, I'm told, that people are nice <laughs> to each other in doing these complicated credit projects. And um, I was painfully aware. So, you know, coming up in games, I remember having bosses that were like, I will only hire guys, it was always guys, I'll only hire guys to run teams if I've played football with them and I've seen them be like aggressive and control. Like I've, I've seen that they have the, the, the machismo to like play football. And I was always like, well, I don't play football. And, and what about the people who <laughs> never played football, especially traditionally in England at least because they're gender. Um, but, as, but I would always be, and, and a lot of times I would see people get promoted or get in the positions of power who were dictators, who were horrible. And everyone I speak to in the film, they all have stories where they're like, oh yeah, I worked with so-and-so, you know, someone that wasn't Scorsese and they're awful, right? And you hear about like David O. Russell and people and, you know, all, all these, and, and, and there is an expectation that classically the director will go in and shout to everybody, right? And and so much of it is because it is this, this traumatic cycle of, the people with the power and the money are horrible <laughs> to you and you're working under horrible situations. And so it does trickle down eventually. Right. And I think, you know, in going Indian part of what I've been doing is like just trying to get to a place where there's enough distance from that and enough comfort that you can, that everyone can just take a breath and chill. Cause I mean, I mean, I, uh, when I had my kids, I went deep on reading about brain chemistry, <laughs> like all that stuff. And just time and time again, I was reading about how everything comes back to uh, cortisol, the stress chemical, and uh, how it damages brains, young brains, to, to generate too much cortisol. And, and, and all the things that happens when your brain is pumping stress chemicals, and it shuts down all the things that enable creativity. Uh, you know, the, the stress chemical basically says we're probably running to, running for our lives, so we don't need to worry about art or mm -hmm. food or any of the peripheral shit. We just need to move our body as fast as possible, right? And our senses need to be slightly accelerated in, in respect to, like, running for our lives. But all the stuff that an actor would draw upon, all the stuff that an artist or anyone working in any kind of craft would draw upon shuts down when you become stressed. So if you're on set and the director is shouting at you, and, and you're generating your stress response, suddenly, you know, you, you are able to, you know, sometimes uh, lift heavier things or, or, or move slightly faster. And maybe you are, you know, drawing on muscle memory of some of your deeply laid skills. But a lot of the nuance and human aspects to your performance are gone. So for me, it's always like, well, you, you're naturally going to get a better result if everyone is well rested and is 
you know, generally happier. And uh, the, the one thing that I hate, and I don't think I've ever done this. Uh, I, no, I haven't ever done this. Uh, the, the one thing I hate is when you hear these stories of directors that to get a performance out of an actor feel that they have to put them through it. And it is always 100% pretty much only with the, the, the female actors, right? So, uh, you know, Adrian Lyne is like, we're going to treat Kim Basinger like shit on nine and a half weeks and tell the crew to be mean to her because I want to get that feeling of, of vulnerability and out of her and I want to see her getting upset and losing her shit. Uh, and then, you know, they interviewed Kim, Kim Basinger a few years later and she was like, I don't know why that fucker couldn't have just asked me to act. Well, that's right, what, like it's, it's, like, it's like Laurence Olivier who who said to Dustin Hoffman after he had spent a few days not sleeping in order to play someone who's never slept and who was an insomniac and everything else. And Laurence Olivier just said to him, "Have you tried acting?" Yeah, um, but it's again, you know, so much of it comes out of like so. Uh, Friedkin mm. did a lot of bad shit, uh, you know, and he he physically harmed some of his actors, but he would do a thing where. Not infrequently, he would apparently, without warning anyone, fire a loaded gun near an actor to get a shock and then now roll camera and to, to, to get them in like a, you know, intense state. Um, and, you know, on, on The Exorcist, there's a scene where someone has to fly across the room. and He would tell them that it wasn't going to be a particularly physically demanding thing. And then he would go and tell the crew, no, I want you to do it five times as hard. Right. And, you know, and he would do those kinds of things where maybe it's a bit like the whole torture argument, right? It's like torture doesn't work. We shouldn't torture people. But when people are like in a pressure situation and they're like, you know, Jack Bauer's bomb is going to go off. <laughs> so so you get out of fear and desperation, you're going to do the torture because it seems like the, you know, yeah. the, the thing that's in front of you. And I think a lot of that shouty, shouty, bossy, bad behavior, uh, you know, is because, you know, so much of the, the situation surrounding creating these things just, just, you know, brings that with it. But it's interesting what oh, you're saying about, you know, the, the, the idea that, you know, the brain chemistry argument about not being able to be creative mm -hmm. under stress and under duress when, when, you know, with the <laughs> countless conversations I've had with Chan and, and you know, and, and other fellow creatives in, in this industry, like we are subjected to enormous amounts of pressure, right? In the positions that we're in. Like, Toxoplasmosis, um, sorry, uh, to me. From <laughs> the people funding or not funding our games, from the people that whose jobs are responsible of, not to mention, you know, having to feed our own families while doing these projects that we are in charge of, etc. So the pressures are, are immense. And technically, under all of that stress, we should not be able yeah. to cope and we should not be able to create, but somehow we do. Um, so maybe we are maniacs. And it, it was only out because of brain chemistry, I was thinking about this. I don't know if have you heard about this amazing, like, worm or it's like this amazing bacteria or virus or something that cats can pick up have you heard of that one it's like they ingest it and and it goes into their feces <laughs> and then they poo it out and then yes but first it impacts rats right 
And and what that worm or whatever the fuck that thing is, I need to look it up. I'm not a scientist, everyone. Um, it yeah, it it does actually relatable. get rid of their fear. I mean, I fear. think yeah. So the rats are no I know longer that's something afraid that we of cats, have and so they just just start chilling around is, <laughs> around cats, and the cats here, can just like casually eat them. And then of course, the, generally, that's the one. Of stress so so maybe face of the kind do the of three of us have the sort of sort of uh, being creative under duress equivalent of toxoplasmosis you know trigger perhaps a mental break are we insane um, yes yeah kind of, i don't know why i definitely have you've had a i have really been told that my superpower is that i don't really get stressed flawed that you continue I, to get up the, the worst apparently you can tell if i am really know, stressed because i'll start being sarcastic on, like, and swearing different projects and um, keep succeeding at but, them but it's i have a pretty low I don't know whether my parents were very nice to me when I was younger. I don't know if I had Um, a model upbringing, but I generally have a very low... Kind of take a moment uh, to consider... So so maybe it's a problem because there'll come a point where I've... Volcanoes exploding and I should be running and I'm just kind of chilling. The person who helms the ship and the captain that goes down with that ship and... um, How much that actually does have to do with ability to withstand stress um, that you know the nature of the job is that stress is always coming for you from all angles something is always going wrong somewhere usually three or four things at a time and you have to be able to hold it together you've got to be able to stay happy in a way stay calm stay content keep living your life Um, because like there is no life if you're you know dealing with kind of the complications of running a team with many different people and trying to manage your funds and trying to market your game and all the rest. Um, if you, if you can't stay calm under that pressure, you will break it. I have no qualms about saying that this is a job that will break a lot of people. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's I've I only have two pieces of advice really it's in fine. this area <laughs> that's the end conclusion that, mantras it's all fine wait it's it's like a, one, wait 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 is, there's a dog meme if about this succeed, you just have to live long enough <laughs> oh, shit. and and that just, just <laughs> no one can see it right now there are flames means, burning all you know, around try us. to find ways to you know deal with the stress levels and all that stuff and the best way to deal with the stress levels is 
is this one thing that I've realized after both my parents passed away is if it doesn't kill you, it doesn't matter. It's it doesn't fucking matter because there will be a solution. Like it's the only thing. The only lack of a solution is at post death. Like that's that's it's over. But maybe who knows? You know, maybe we'll make some even better games after that. <laughs> but it's uh, but it's 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 interesting. It's like we dealing with that and having that responsibility and having being the the person at whom the buck stops. Uh, is immense, but it's also exciting, and it's it's fine, isn't it, Sam? It's fine, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But they're fine. on fire. It's <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> Damn! What do they do instead? I'm always I'm always very very conscious that everything I might believe or have evidence for could be an extreme case of survivor bias. I'm like this, you know, everything is fine and will continue to be, but I've had a lucky run. So who knows? Sam, I mean, I think it's the best way to end this. Isn't <laughs> it's not it? stressed I mean, about I, it. It will be fine. Yeah, I'm excited that you have two things go, on on the go at the same time, um, uh, and I'm sure you'll divulge nothing on this episode about those two. And it's fine. I can That's tell you everything. Good. I can tell you everything. And I've got, I've got like, I've got design docs. Ooh, <laughs> Which is a funny thing. So, someone on the team who just joined uh, read some of the the documentation mm-hmm. I provided. And they were like, oh, they're like, this is like an old fashioned design doc where someone's written down what the game is going to be. I haven't seen one of those for a while. <laughs> Cause yeah, it was just like, Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll just figure stuff out and create a wiki and, and just figure it out. Whereas like, no, this, this is the intent for it. Um, yeah. Knowingly it's two things that, that as, as far as we're aware and planning for, like we'll take a good few years to make, which is terrifying. Because then you have to start counting how many years you have left. And, no, you just said uh, you're not terrified of anything. Come on, don't give me that. <laughs> I mean, it's not terror. It's just, it's, yeah, it's just like, ah, uh, like I wish, I wish you could knock a game out every year. Like it's the weirdest thing about games is, you know, if you take like the if you take the the AAA blockbuster as like the the ultimate prestige form. You know, if, if a game, I don't know what, I was going to say four or five years, but then if you look at something like Starfield, that was like eight years. But let's say four or five years. Let's say it takes four or five years to make your AAA meaningful, beautiful work of art. Now, to sign that game and get the funding, you're probably pointing to an existing AAA game that your game is going to be the 1.1 version of, right? Like it, no one is giving you 200 million to invent a new genre, right? They're giving you 200 million to go make Last of Us 2. And when you're making Last of Us, you're telling them that it's Resident Evil 4 plus the road, right? And so when you look at how people are expressing themselves in that medium, you're making this thing which will take you five years to execute. And obviously you can course correct as you go, but you know, to some extent you're locked in. 
But that five years is based on a thing that was made five years ago. And so you kind of just, the, the level of like inertia and, and your ability to tap into things and, and kind of meaningfully create things that, that feel like they are of the present feels, feels kind of very, very difficult. So that's like an awkward thing because all of the, the last three games I've made, like her story was, I think, technically 14 months. So that was pretty fast. And then Telling Lies was like two and a half years. Uh, and then the Immortality was about two and a half years. And, you know, the two and a half years feels like it goes pretty quick. Uh, and then the next two projects, uh, the, the bigger one is like four years. Because um, that's just what it's going to take to make it. And it's, I don't know, I hate that. Like, I, it's, I don't know, but I also have like, I don't know, have so many weird relationships to creativity. Uh, like when I was younger, I, I had the, the kind of obsession, I guess you sometimes see like someone like Tarantino has this obsession uh, with like, I only want to create perfect things. And I want to go out of this world and leave behind, you know, Tarantino wants his legacy. He wants to have only made great movies and he doesn't want to keep making them and them get worse. He wants to, you know, have this controlled legacy. And for the longest time I'd be like, oh man, I've, I'm writing these things and I'm making these things, but I don't want to show them to anyone because I know it's not, I haven't hit that level yet. <laughs> and then at some point I was like, no, fuck it. You just, man, if you've got an opportunity to put something out there, just, just put it out and you can keep moving and you can iterate and, uh, and then I'll see something like, uh, like the game Gora Goa, Jason Roberts made. I was like, he doesn't need to make any more games ever now. He's, he's made the one, he's made this one thing that's so good. He can just peace out. He's, he can just go and rest the rest of his life. Now, obviously he can't cause he needs to pay his rent, um, mm -hmm. which is, is awful, but that's definitely like where my head is now is like, I can just churn, churn stuff out. But if, if I get a chance to make like, you know, like uh, rewatching yesterday to try and motivate myself, but uh, like Ken Russell's The Devils, I'm like, that is such a just phenomenal thing that got created there that everyone involved can just be like, that's it. That, I, that's all I need to do, right? You see like Bunuel, uh, who I was a fan of, uh, he was like the opposite of Scorsese, right? Scorsese is like, I'm going to keep making stuff until I die. I'm just going to keep working and working. Bunuel was like, I'm good. I'm going to retire and drink wine. Like I've, I've done it. If, you know, I've made some good things out. I've, I've put these things out there. Yeah. I don't know. I think I'd be the latter, but uh, yeah, it scares me when you, it's when you have to own up to how long things are going to take up front. Cause yeah, you can like um, my, I was, I was realizing the other day that I think my favorite movie of the century so far is probably uh, under the skin which was a movie that took Jonathan Glazer over 10 years to make. Well, I've to, been working to, on a film, The Winter's Journey, which is coming out next year, hopefully, for five years now. Yeah. And and every single time we think we're finished, we have another year of post-production and other things and other stuff on top of it. And, and, and it's huge. And it's, it doesn't matter. The other thing is like, it doesn't matter how small the budget, like if the vision is original 
and authentic indeed mm. and full of intent fuck it will it can I take mean, forever I've done a lot of different especially things, if you have that but... crazy drive to make something perfect <laughs> and to make something as truthful to your original vision and your intent as possible <laughs> things can take forever yeah. but it also takes courage to be able to then uh, communicate that to the stakeholders, right? To say to the people that have invested in something, to go like, it's not ready yet. That was kind and, of mine. And the best way for you to make this back, this money back, is for you to realize that, yeah, we need another year. And, and then you'll make it back and then some. Rush it out. You might make it back, but you won't be proud of it. And... And that's another fear level that a lot of people, mm -hmm. you know, need to Talking. overcome, I think, in this industry is that sometimes indeed things are only ready when they're fucking finished <laughs> and and when they're perfect. Um, I guess mm -hmm. it is. Yeah, it is. It is scary. And it's, it, is, it is a complete exercise in madness what we do. Um, absolutely. Uh, but uh, it's the only thing we know how to do, I think. Right. I mean, I, I wouldn't know how to do anything else. I mean, I'm down to. Yeah, I could figure. I could figure some. I could figure out a plan B if, if you forced me. Um, what would you do? What's your plan B? Let's hear that now. Well, I mean, my plan, my original plan A, uh, was I wanted to be uh, a homicide detective. That was the job I wanted because I'd seen it on TV. I'd seen it on TV, and I was like, I'd be so fucking cool tracking down murderers and doing all this cool stuff that people do on TV. And then I did briefly like look into it and it was like, Oh, in the UK, if you want to be a police detective, uh, you have to become like a beat cop for, for so many years and all this stuff. And I was like, that is not what I want to do. That is not a job I would be good at. This is, you know, okay, this isn't going to work. <laughs> so what should I do this instead? Uh, And like all, all my favorite artists are failed painters, like uh, like J.G. Ballard famously is like, oh, I wanted to be a painter, but I wasn't good enough. So I wrote instead, uh, like Peter Greenway, you see him talking and it's like, oh, mm -hmm. he, he really want, would much rather be making great paintings um, or, or exist at a time when he could make great paintings. Um, so I wanted to be a painter, but didn't really uh, <laughs> The, the right privileges to end up in that place. And, and, it, and as well, the time I was thinking that was at a time when uh, the young British artists were blowing up and nobody was <laughs> doing paintings. <laughs> paintings was the least cool thing you could do. Um, so, but yeah, if I was forced to now give up on video games, which is, I occasionally think that because it's like, you know, if things get really bad, uh, And we don't have access. To, there's, there's so much infrastructure required of this medium that we work in, right? If tomorrow suddenly the internet stopped working, uh, if suddenly we stopped having access to these really good computers, uh, you know, there's all, all these things that would immediately, you know, I mean, just turn off the power and suddenly none of my art exists and, and can be experienced, right? So it's very fragile, um, so I do occasionally think, oh, is there a, something else oh, I could cool. be doing? <laughs> Renegade for but it is, yes. So what is it? <laughs> Keep Sam in video games. I don't know. For society. Um, yeah, I guess. I guess if the if the if the electricity got turned off, I could I could try and prove myself as a painter and see if anyone cared. They probably wouldn't. 
Well, they, w- they wouldn't be able to see your paintings because there'd be no light. No, but maybe I would then, maybe I would go back to being a homicide detective because there'd be a lot of murdering happening. Yeah. And, um, but then I, now that I've, now like, especially when I did her story, I went so deep in, in researching, well, how does it work to be a homicide detective? And I got all the training manuals and stuff. And then I realized like all the sad shit that, you know, things like making a murder made clear where it's like, there's so much coercion and, you know, the, the, you know, how many, how many useful crimes are usefully solved? Um, and, and just all the, the nonsense that is the, <laughs> the kind of justice system. So maybe I'm not going to become a, I'll, I'll, I'll be like a renegade cop. Actually, that sounds worse. Renegade, renegade it, really sounds like, it really sounds like you're sticking, you're sticking to video games. I think, I think you're sticking to video games. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I remember seeing like an, an interview with, or maybe it was just a throwaway comment that Emily Short had. Uh, I think that it was, it was maybe around the, the silly thing where people are like, oh, what historical period would you prefer to have lived in, right? And for for 90% of people, it's maybe 10 years ago, but any 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 further than that, and my quality of life is nosediving, right? Um, and you know, particularly, uh, you know, if, if you're of a certain gender or, or ethnicity, there's whole swathes of human history where like, fuck no. Um, but I think it was Emily Shaw that was like, there is, you know, given that there's that constraint already, like on, on living in these historical periods, I have somehow found myself with a skill set that is making video games that that literally is only useful for this teeny, teeny little fraction of the existence of humanity. If you go any further back, this entire skill set that I have built up is completely useless because because nothing exists that would allow me to to do this work. Yeah, but but I love that because because when, if you think about, um, well, first of all, film is, falls very much in a very similar category because you know um, uh, before it was invented, you know, um, no one watched it, and and now most of it is disappearing into endless streaming platforms. But but uh, whenever you make a play, it's there for those two hours, and then it disappears again. And the, the the effort that goes into putting together a stage production is sometimes akin to putting together a movie. I mean, it's insane how much. So so the the idea of mortality that goes into you know, which beautifully takes us to also your 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 your, your latest game is like the idea of actually of creating something that that will disappear after its creation uh, or even during its creation um, is, is both precious and it's tragic, but it's also beautiful. It's uh, yeah, that was, that was actually, that was my personal conclusion on making immortality. We had like these two, we had these two, we had the three answers to the question. um, How, how do we deal with our our impending mortality? Um, and, and the three answers that the, the game explored and posited were, uh, there's the religious answer, which is that there is actually some abstract something beyond this, and we can access it through ritual and, and, and through religious practice, like some glimpse of it, but then we live in, in hope of this thing. So there's the religious answer. Uh, then there was the artistic answer, which is I will create something which will live beyond me, right? I'm going to create 
the the book or the sculpture or the you know I'll, I'll create McDonald's and that will live beyond me. Uh, and then the middle answer, uh, which was represented in in the game in the kind of seventies period where Marissa is living in New York and hanging out with Warhol and having a whole lot of fun, uh, was was living in the moment. It's like if, if I live in opposition to the whole concept of mortality, like if I'm just present and I'm living in the moment and I'm doing things which bring joy to me and the people around me, that in itself is is a way of dealing with mortality. And but you know, by the time we'd finished the game, I was like, I think the and I remember having a discussion with Manon who was playing Marissa. I was like, yeah, the happiest that Marissa was was at this point in the 70s, where there was this this in, engagement with creating the art in the moment and there was this expansion of of people's concepts of themselves and pleasure and stuff that uh allowed that um so i think that's because i I, uh, worked on this this big game that got cancelled and i was working with a a writer on that who was a novelist and we would always have these uh i was gonna say drunk i didn't think we were drunk maybe we were just tired end of the day discussions around like, you know, he was putting out novels that uh, were, were pretty successful critically, uh, but he was like three or four books in, which once you're three or four books in, you're no longer a fresh, sexy author. So unless you've hit it big, you know, your books are reaching a certain audience and they're getting reviewed in all the broadsheets and stuff. But he would write these books and they would obviously be pretty close to his personal expression because he would have that direct access by being a writer uh putting these books out maybe they have an audience of of, you know x thousand people who then have this very close experience with him and then we're working together on this big video game that if it had come out would have had an audience of millions but we knew that we were compromising there were there were so many stakeholders and we having to make so many compromises with our storytelling so we were like you know this is not this direct contact with the audience that we would like, but is it offset by how many people are going to experience it? Um, and then the thing that was really difficult to us initially was, was that thing of how short lived this game would be, right? Like he writes a book and it's possible that in a hundred years time, uh, the electricity is all gone and people are, coming through the rubble and they find a copy of his book and they can read it if they still speak the language. Right. And so there's a sense of just, uh, you know, of that immortality project. Whereas we knew that if we were making a video game for the Xbox console uh, in five years, it's going to look like shit in 20 years. It's unplayable. Uh, if, If it, you know, if technically it's playable, just the way it would look or play would make it unplayable. So, it, it was this ephemeral thing, but I think definitely the older I get, the more I'm like, the, the really cool thing is to, to touch people as to, to create as intimate and an and intense a connection with the audience. And that's the key. And if it happens for one day, you've made that connection and, and, you know, that's the important thing. And that'll be then carried off by people. And, you know, so for me, mm-hmm. you know, if I make a game that takes five hours for people to play, but it's the game that they think about five years later. And, so, and so see, you, you wanted to become a painter, you failed at it, but now you're hanging out with Warhol and you're living in the moment. 
It's very beautiful. With a, a fake Warhol. You're hanging out with a fake Warhol. <laughs> that really touches on the ethos that um, I've always held going into games, having been someone who was very, very critical in the past as a gamer um, of how much time video games take away from our lives and, you know, the presence we have in the world and, you know, just like the drain on self-development and human connection and, you know, environmental connection that we have. Games are constantly kind of trying to pull our attention away from these things that tend to truly most authentically bring us the most joy. And so I grappled with the ethics of game making, of contributing to that, vying for attention and pulling people away. And what I ultimately arrived at was that it is not just ethical, but good to make a game. And by game, what I'm really, a game is a medium. A game is a vessel that delivers something, or it should be. And so using the game as the medium and the vessel for art, and what is not just ethical, but moral and good, is to provide people with an experience that touches them in a way that positively changes them and enables that change to be carried with them through into the future so while the game might you know take an hour or five hours or a thousand hours if a player touches that game and learns something about themselves or about other people that expands their perspective or their empathy their compassion their ability to rationalize in beneficial ways um that game never ends that game becomes a part of a person and is carried forward through into the future and like i think that's really that's the beauty of it all so we don't have to worry about the shelf life because the shelf life exists in you know, the minds and the spirits and the hearts of the people who are engaged with the things that we make. And and I th- that's beautiful. And I think in, the, in that and doing so, I think we also remove the thing that is the most abrasive and annoying about an auteur is the idea of an ego that wants to be talked about and be remembered for their great contribution and the great work etc once you're able to throw all of that out the window and the only thing you want to do is give someone something to take away uh, with them um, or not Um, if you sort of remove yourself from the equation and pour yourself into the work then the auteur fades with it but the work remains and it doesn't matter for how long as long as it exists and What's amazing about you, Sam, is that you create beautiful things that last, um, even if they don't take days and days and days to finish. There are things that stick with you, that remain with you, that you keep thinking about. And I cannot wait to see what you create in those next two and a half to four years. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, you're one of the rare gifts to this to this world of, of games and interactive experiences. And uh, thank you for uh, joining us on Directional. Thanks for having me.
Directional is hosted by Jörg Tittle in London, Chantal Ryan in Adelaide, and produced by Paul Bennon in Los Angeles for Rapid Eye Movers. The theme song was composed by Oliver Krauss and Fralli Hines. Follow us on Twitter at Directional Show and listen to past episodes at directional.show. See you next time.